Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. It is nice to be here talking to you at this moment in my life. And actually just in general, it's nice to be doing this especially today because I've had one of those days. Um, it, it's not a weird day, but it's one of those um, Mondays because I'm recording this on a Monday, which I haven't had in a while. You know, when I used to kind of be out of the house and have this, I've never had like a hectic, hectic, crazy 90-hour week lifestyle. But when I used to do the radio show Monday to Friday, then weekends were kind of like a blur, just binging, Saturday drinking, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, and Sunday recovery, Sunday night. And then the Mondays would be really kind of bad uh, when it comes to uh, energy levels, when it comes to mood levels, when it comes to even just keeping one thought in place as opposed to like the cycles of thoughts which just race through your head. You can't really focus on anything. You can't even focus um, on focusing and it just becomes a weird day. And I wouldn't say Monday blues by any means, but um, today is one of those Mondays after quite a while, after a long time. And it's one, I was just thinking and I did a lot of that, which wasn't really uh, didn't really serve any purpose because it wasn't productive uh, or even peaceful or wasn't even like a, a relaxed way of li- sort of spending the day. But, you know, that I think there are two kinds of thinking, right? There's the thinking which we all kind of take for granted, which, you know, is kind of the human element of thought and, and whatever it may be. And, and I don't know, maybe, maybe more than two ways, right? Like one way is this where you have thoughts, whether you like it or not. You have a little spark that goes into a larger concept of a thought, then that becomes a bigger thought, then that becomes a cycle of thoughts. And, you know, many of us get anxious thoughts. Many of those cycles become worse, become better. But we do a lot of things to manage our thoughts, right? Uh, and many of us, of course, I think all of us have negative thoughts where we think of one thing, then we start building the story into something which has never happened. We speculate, what if he says this? And what if she does this? Then you anticipate the reaction, the consequences of that thought. And the next thing you know, you've created an entire scenario of events in, you know, in, in anticipation of something which you might um, think that in anticipation of an event that you're going to meet and some some cases those thoughts might uh, turn out to be true and I'll just tell my wife right sometimes when I have to meet someone who typically in the past has annoyed me or has traits that are annoying I build this kind of story in my head of what if this person does this I'm sure she'll do this I'm sure she'll say this I'm sure she's going to end up doing this I'm going to get irritated so it, there are two scenarios one is that uh, in the past, when I had to go meet some people, I, I would do this and none of that would pan out. And I feel like shit because I've spent so much energy and all of that has just, no, it's not it's not served any purpose. And they ended up actually being really nice and the evening was fun. And I would do this uh, when I would think, oh, these guys are going to say something about my eyes. I'm going to be insulted. I'm going to get upset and then I'm going to get angry and then I'm going to have this thing to say. I'm going to have that thing to say. And then none of that would happen. And it was just kind of be like this entire structure I've built, which has just come caving in and I'm just pooped emotionally physically as a, as a result as well but sometimes i've realized that when you have these things uh, you build the story you let all the emotional rage or the emotional the the, the the unsettling feelings all kind of rush through in that made up scenario so when you do actually meet the person you've kind of already kind of spent out the energy i, I don't know if that's a healthier way of doing it many probably psychologists say what the fuck is this guy talking about but honestly speaking i feel sometimes because that person 
it's, maybe now it's, I'm doing this with fewer people who I know better and I can read better because when I do that entire thing and I build this entire story and in whatever scenario, it's not that fixed, it's not affecting me that well, that deeply, I'm not getting angry, but whatever emotion it is, I let it kind of play out in this sort of made up drama in my head and the movie's over, the, the feelings are done, the feelings are spent, whatever it may be, the irritation's gone, the anger's gone, the annoyance is gone. So when I do meet the person, I'm able to kind of laugh it off saying, you know what, I already watched this movie. I don't have to get, react to it at this point. So that's that's one set of thoughts. I think the other set of thoughts um, are more uh, when you try to kind of put your thoughts to a certain task, right? You're thinking of whatever you're doing, whether it's work or whether it's an activity, whether it's indulging in a certain moment in time to get an output or get something uh, done with that time of yours. And those are those, I don't know, productive thoughts some people call, some people call it positive thoughts, some people call it thoughts that are focused and some people call it intentional thinking. I have no clue. I don't have a term for it. But those are the thoughts which, you know, people say, you should do that. You should you should be in the zone. You should be in the flow. You should, uh, whatever, they have these different books for it and they have different ways to get to that state. Um, then there are the thoughts that I like, right? Which are the thoughts that are chill, the thoughts that don't really serve a purpose, but at the same time they do. But, you know, they might not serve a material purpose of getting a task done or getting your homework done or getting a job um, activity, whatever that you're doing for the day or writing a joke or writing a story. Yeah, it's good. But these are the thoughts that kind of fuel those thoughts. It's kind of setting the premise of setting the, the, the it's setting the landscape in your mind to be that person who you are. It's these thoughts of daydreaming, right? What? Uh, and I'm not saying they have to escalate like the first kind of thoughts which build up into this anxiety or anticipation or the speculation of what might happen. But it's a more relaxed. If, if you want to compare this, uh, these kind of thoughts into songs, the first one is going to be more like this, 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 this. EDM or electronic music which builds up to like and then the second kind is more like this you'd say classical right it's structured it's, it, I don't know I'm not a big classical fan but I'm assuming because a lot of people when I read books they're like oh you know these genius detectives he goes back home lights up his cigar lights up lights up his pipe and puts on some Chopin uh, Swan Lake by Chopin and then he solves the mystery in a second and I'm like oh wow maybe Chopin or maybe put on Bach and I listen to bark and i'm just like what the fuck uh, and and if you want to look into this music i'd say this is more um this third way of thinking which is the daydreaming which is the relaxed thoughts the thoughts that kind of you enjoy thinking right it may be even fantasy building it may be like you know if i get a huge yacht what am i going to do with it where am i going to stop but then you might and if it does go the negative space it's kind of easy to get out of there because you're in a good place right you're in a chill place you're in a laid-back space you're like hmm I'm on a cloud and I'm going flying. And there's no usually material uh, values attached to it. There's no like if I own my jet one day, if I buy a sports car one day, when I build my fa- fancy dream apartment one day, when I go to my dream do- location. Usually it's, it, it be, it's beyond all that. It's kind of just like, you know what? None of this will come true or none of this is something I'm going to work towards, but I'm just really enjoying this place where I am in my head and having a chill session with my brain, creating the space, creating these emotions, creating these feelings, creating these scenarios, creating these stories, which I'm enjoying spending time with. And that is more like, I would say, uh, Louisiana jazz or maybe even a nice kind of Caribbean, uh, not reggae but something like that it's just kind of has this steady beat it's 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 up and down it's uh even a little chaotic it's a little erratic but it's not jarring it's not setting you up and then you have the last kind of thoughts which is sort of like um 
I don't give a genre of music to it. I don't, but it, it's kind of broken, right? It's like what I was going through today. It's like you start on one thought and then it just ends. Then you look at your phone. And this is where your f- distraction tools come in, right? Whether it's social media, whether it's the phone, whether it's WhatsApp, whether it's uh, whatever the, the, the distraction, uh, way, way of distraction you have. You go to it. Like the moment you, you close your eyes to read a book, nah, that thought's done. The moment you start reading the book, you can't even focus on three words because you're thinking of something else. Then you want to get up and do something else. Then you want to go put away something else. Because another thought thing, like, did you put away those jeans? Then you don't put away those jeans because by the time you think and get up to go put away those jeans, another thought is coming. And and this is sort of like the 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 30-second highlight reels of songs right like i remember we're growing up we used to have these top these chart shows right on mtv on channel v which is such a if you think about a cruel channel to introduce like to a country like india where half the people couldn't get the fucking channel's name they'll be like hey bro you watch the channel v and you're like what w e w e no no channel v bro v v v v for victory and i was just like oh someone's having a good laugh and all the the guys on it because at some point it became an indian um led um, you know the the the, the whatever they call the hosts were all Indian. At one point, it was from Singapore. Then they became Indian. They were like, "Welcome to Channel V Top Hundred Music." And I'm like, "Oh, yes, someone's having a big laugh." So Channel V, MTV. I'm I'm doing it, overdoing it. But Channel V, my wife's like, "Why do you bite your V's?" I'm like, "Because it took me a long time, and people laughed at me in England when I laughed at me in Wales and Swansea when I couldn't get my V's and W's, my V's and W's, my V's and W's." So yeah, I I went overboard, and I'm apologize if it's biting in your ear as well. And they would have these, oh, coming up on the hour, we've got, and I did this in radio as well, coming up on the hour, guys, we have, this is what you can look forward to, the tunes, we have Alan Walker, we have, the, and there's this, tiki tiki tiki, and then the tiki tiki, and by the time you can actually sink into the rhythm, it's gone. And it, it's kind of like advertising music, it's kind of noise, and it's this noise that doesn't let you uh, kind of get past to a place of silence. It's this noise like that's got, like it's got mosquito in your ear. In your ear. In your ear. There's another thing we Indians can't say. We, many of us say, yeah, hey, my ear's hurting. Oh, really? Which one? 21, 22, 1984? Um, yeah, and that's something that took me a while as well. So it's ear. Yeah, my ear's hurting. But it's, it's, you have to make it a point, guys. If you want to get something right, you have to make it a point to bite the word. So it becomes a part of your vocabulary and the way you speak and you don't revert that's the way you can use it. Revert to revert with the V, I think, to things like, oh, that day I went and drank some vodka and I had it, man. Next day, my ears were ringing. Oh, all the way through the 1980 decade. Yeah. Anyhow, I digress. So this fourth way of thinking, I can call it almost like this. This crazy, you know, you go for a Bollywood night, they play only 10 seconds of a song. And next thing you're like, oh my God, I'm smelling people's body odor and my head is spinning. This is a great night. Be your nights. That's why they call body odor nights or Bollywood nights. Anyhow, I have nothing against Bollywood music. I have some really good memories uh, from friends' weddings, songs. I don't know why it's a disclaimer, but I feel like I have to do it. So I feel those are the four ways. And the, this last way of thinking, man, I don't know what you need. I don't know what it takes to get out of that way of thinking. I don't know, sleep or a few drinks. Because the drinks are usually what gets you in that place to start with. So a recovery beer in the evening helps. But I don't know. So what kind of music do you like? Do you like electronic? Do you like classical? Chopin? Or do you like Beethoven, Mozart? Or do you like some nice New Orleans jazz? I think Duke Ellington, just naming it off of my ass. I've never really been a big fan or listened to too much of it. But 
It could be even classic rock, you know, classic rock, classic rock got structure, but it's also got that, it's got, it's got that nice feel to it, right? When you listen to like, say, you know, White Snake, or you listen to, um, I don't know, like, who, who are the classical rockers, ruckus rockers, like even um, when you listen to Aerosmith, like Dream On, or you listen to, I don't know, the Beatles classic rock, but you listen to, um, which is that song? Hmm. What's that song? Black. Oh, I can't get the name. Not Black Pearl. Uh, I was playing the song the other day. My, my, my daughter loves listening to music, which is not kiddie music. Um, she likes listening to John Mayer. and uh, She likes listening to um, classic rock. And clearly, I'm just blanking on names. Like, I mean, I have songs which I like, like Smashing Pumpkins have a couple of, I mean, I'm sure they have a lot of good songs, but I like listening to some, I used to listen to Stone Temple Pilots. Um, but, which is, I can't get this song by the Beatles. Uh, it's something with black and I don't know, maybe you, it, you, it rings, rings a bell with you. But there's, there's some songs which you can really just put on your headphones and escape to another world. And that's what I'm talking about. This third way of thinking It could be, um, you know, a marketing person say, you should never spend time. Every moment, every second lost is a crore lost. And I, why do they say a crore? These fuckers on YouTube come on these ads. You know that building? I lived there once, but now I'm in Lithuania on my yacht. Oh, great. Can you get your V's and W's right though? No, I'm a venture capitalist. Great, buddy. Anyhow, before I go down that path, I think these four ways of thinking are there. So what's your style of music? Do you like classical? Do you like classic rock? Do you like New Orleans jazz? Do you like reggae? Do you like Bollywood? Do you like snippets or do you like EDM? It could be anything. It could be whatever suits your way of living, that thought process that suits you. Just telling you what I went through on this particular day. It was the fourth way of thinking and it didn't really make me feel good. So I choose and I try to not think like that. Anyway, I have a lovely guest on today's episode and I'm sure I say that on every episode. But today's guest is Dr. Deepak Krishnamurti. He's a cardio surgeon. He's, he, he works at Sakara Super Speciality Hospital in my very own city of Bangalore. And on today's episode, in today's episode... On today's episode, in today's episode, I'm going to choose to go with in today's episode because I just feel like saying in, even if it's grammatically wrong, but dramatically feels great. We talk about the healthcare system because it's something you keep hearing when you go to the West, you know, with the V-E-S-T, you know, the West. I I know I was intentional, guys. When you look at America, it was like private healthcare, goddamn curse. I need to get my insurance and the national health scheme national health scheme nhs is completely free but we also hear about the nightmare stories from the 170,000 nhs workers have quit over the past year crazy numbers high stress we heard but of course there are systems which exist for a reason or maybe not but there's also the corporatization of healthcare there are companies running hospitals as a profitable business where do the patients come in where do they fit in what what is the healthcare provided what is the process what are the benefits of a corporate healthcare system what are the benefits of a free healthcare system what are the benefits of a government run we have government hospitals in india which we call the public is called the government which is funded by the government but of course none of us who have money go there because we think it's a nightmare and there's so many questions we have when it comes to private healthcare, when it comes to public healthcare, when it comes to government-funded healthcare. And Dr. Deepak 
did me the courtesy of taking me through the various models, the benefits, the downfall, the scope for improvement, the the future for the healthcare system in India, how the public health situation is looking, how it's going to pan out, and a whole lot more. And, well, my questions, I hope, answer some of your questions. And Dr. Deepak, I hope, will answer those for all of us. Great conversation and quite enlightening in some ways. And in many ways, it might even answer some fears and some um, doubts and some things you might have, which you've thought about your own health or your family's health or the future of your family's health. Anyway, listen through, listen in and out, and you might have your questions and you will have your questions. Sound confident as a podcast host. Okay. You will have your questions answered by my guest today. Okay, cool. Anyhow, coming right now, right here, right here, right now. That's another song by Fat Boy Slim, but you can't call him that anymore. You call body positive, um, cis male or cis something, uh, uh, negatively challenged DJ. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm just rambling. I apologize. Well, coming right now is Dr. Deepak Krishnamurti talking about healthcare and a whole lot more. Doctor, if you're listening, I appreciate it. And if you are listening, of course you're listening. Otherwise, how will you know I'm talking? Hey, okay. I appreciate it as always. Thank you for tuning in to every episode week in, week out. Till next time, goodbye. God bless. Take care of yourself, my friend. Cheers. Dr. Deepa Krishnamurti, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure having you here today. Same here. Happy to be part of this show. Thank you. So you work at Sakara Hospital, which is known in Bangalore as a super speciality hospital, which a lot of people come to because of the expertise, the staff, and also the, the, the reputation that it holds. Um, and, you know, in a city like Bangalore, which I think represents some of the rapidly growing, um, you know, aspects of our economy with IT, with investment, with venture capitalists. So, and it being in a part like Whitefield, where you have a lot of people who've returned from the US or from Europe, and they expect a certain uh, standard of healthcare. Uh, so what, in a nutshell, can you describe as the present state of our healthcare system in Bangalore and in, in, in India at large? So at present, uh, if you take India at large, um, mm -hmm. healthcare, um, uh, I had tweeted something about this uh, a few months back. Mm -hmm. So at one end, you have the private uh, corporate hospitals mm -hmm. uh, providing cutting-edge technology, skilled uh, manpower, including doctors, mm -hmm. uh, specialists and subspecialists, uh, specialists uh, across different fields, uh, plus the ambience and uh, infrastructure uh, to house all these and provide a comfortable and uh, uh, cutting-edge care. Uh, to people who can afford it. Uh, affordability mm. becomes an issue at this end of the spectrum. Either you have to have a good medical insurance or uh, or you have to pay from your pocket, which is quite difficult yeah. uh, considering the cost of some of the advanced therapies and uh, medication and procedures. Mm -hmm. On the uh, And then you have uh, smaller hospitals uh, and nursing homes, uh, private again, but the cost being slightly uh, less if you have a lower insurance also, you can afford to get uh, procedures and surgeries done here. But all the advanced uh, treatment may or may not be available depending on the type of hospital. Uh, and some of these may not deal with all the specialties like usual private uh, corporate hospitals do. 
that mm-hmm. under one roof you get all the care because uh, disease uh, comes with uh, other comorbidities yeah a heart patient may not just be a heart patient he may have kidney issues he may have lung issues he may have diabetes similarly a cancer patient may have a few other comorbidities so having all specialties under one roof where a mm-hmm. patient can get complete treatment becomes important which mm-hmm. the smaller hospitals may or may not have uh, and then come the charitable hospitals uh, medical college hospitals which right. uh, are aimed at providing uh, decent uh, standard care uh, to people at an affordable cost uh, since these are charitable hospitals or medical colleges they do quite a bit of uh, free treatment because they have students who have to learn who have to uh, treat these patients and get trained uh, so they operate at a lower cost and then right. you have the government hospitals and uh, med- government medical college hospitals and then you have the primary health care and uh, smaller clinics and uh, dispensaries so this is broadly the uh, type of hospitals what we have in the country Mm-hmm. uh in bangalore again you can divide hospitals similarly uh ideally speaking uh, uh government hospitals uh at uh, primary secondary and tertiary care uh, should be more widely available so that uh, people can uh, utilize them more effectively uh can go without any hindrance that this treatment may not be available that treatment may not be available yeah uh, so when that happens that that is when i would say uh, the society uh, reaches that stage of uh, refinement or development where anybody can walk into a public hospital or a government hospital and get the best possible treatment right uh, unfortunately because of the population uh, because we are still a young country after independence yeah. uh, we are not like a 300 or 400 year old um, country like uh, some of the uh, western countries mm. we are still we got independence in 47 Mm-hmm. so we are slowly getting there i would say and yeah. uh, it will take time it takes some amount of uh, trial and error and uh, experiences over time for the government and the people to realize that that is where we have to reach ultimately because right. uh, private hospitals of course are there and they provide the necessary care and expertise at this point but uh, in an ideal scenario a public hospital should be as good and uh, affordable uh, or are reasonably priced for most of the population to make use of it because you know if you compare it we you said the western countries were clearly if you look at the national health scheme in the uk in a quote unquote developed country seems to have a huge uh, problem when it comes to backlog when it comes to treatment so even there in a country where there is a basic uh, attempt at a national health program people when they have money do go to the private sector right so uh, so what i'm trying to understand just want, just to backtrack from the patient point of view to maybe the medical uh training point of view there is clearly an incentive for even medical students to kind of train to get into this private sector because for various reasons right i think maybe its status maybe it's also pay but it's also maybe access to better technology and better research and and also um peer um what do you call the peer reviews and they get um maybe better training if i'm not mistaken but sure. so what is that system like the feeding system into this uh, healthcare uh, see uh, doctors want to get into uh, private uh, sector or the corporate mm-hmm. sector mainly because of the incentives and uh, uh, the good salaries they get paid in these hospitals mm-hmm. uh, they uh, they they do not treat a huge Uh, number of patients they treat a decent number of patients uh, where you can give individualized attention and care 
um, uh, compared to say a public hospital where the inflow is huge and yeah. you may not be able to even talk to some of the patients uh, adequately uh, examine them adequately or provide the best of care there mm-hmm. you are just supposed to see as many patients as possible and provide the basic care whereas in a corporate private hospital there's more individualized attention and there is time and space available to uh, explain talk counsel them uh, provide empathetic care uh, although it comes at a cost uh, yeah. doctors would prefer working in a scenario where there are relatively fewer patients but you can give more attention yeah uh, salary is one part of it but the comfort of working uh, in a corporate hospital uh, definitely is better compared to the private public sector because there are a huge number of patients you don't have adequate staff you do not have adequate um, space and equipment to deal with some of these uh, patients yeah. so that is where the uh, difference comes in Uh, coming to the nhs type of scenario of course it is a good system uh, but obviously because of political and other reasons wrong decision making uh, it has uh, grown into disrepute people working there themselves are not so happy uh, with the kind of pay with the kind of uh, you know policy decisions being taken right uh, at the end of the day there's no perfect system i get depending on what kind of population what kind of patients we have and what kind of manpower we have and what kind of budgetary allocations we have we have to make do we have to create yeah. a scenario where we optimally utilize uh, resources maybe a bit of private a bit of government a bit of in between like how india is i wouldn't say india is an opti- optimal uh, system but say, but uh, but there is something for everybody right now it's almost like an aspiration right like if someone can afford a car why would they take the bus it's kind of that kind of mindset right like we would and, and even uh, in a car yeah. everybody would not go and buy a high end audi or a bmw yeah uh, some yeah. will buy a maruti some will buy a uh, nano some will buy uh, something in between so there is something for everybody that's what i mean to say yeah no but i want to understand uh from a point of view of practice you said the large volume of patients that come to a pr- public hospital now i remember when we spoke first over the phone a few days back i was telling you about my experience when i was 8 or 9 uh, and frequently after that going for my yearly checkups at shankara not shankara sorry shankanetralaya the number of people with a certain eye disorder was a lot more than you would see say in a mayo clinic or a kci institute in the us right which of course you know yeah. if i had the opportunity and i think anyone would go to the the highest uh, institution when it comes to reputation but the doctors themselves get a lot more experience when they see a, 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 that many patients so what is your um, point of view when it comes to a, a doctor being uh, put in that environment to see that many cases just by sheer number of um just just for the practice point of view like you your your exposure to that kind of so uh, so, so when a doctor is in the uh, training stage mm-hmm. definitely working in a high volume center uh, doing your uh, uh, degrees say md or further in a high volume center mm-hmm. uh, makes a lot of sense um because you get to see more and more patients you get to see uh, different varieties of patients across different uh, disease categories right. and you get to learn and uh, uh, teachers get opportunity to teach and demonstrate the different um, cases and everything mm-hmm. but once you're done with the training you if you yourself are not interested much in the teaching part one would prefer going to a setup where uh, you can use your expertise but in a relatively quieter uh, a little less crowded environment where you can optimally treat the patients because uh, uh, most of these high volume centers 
uh, are medical colleges or training centers and right. the pay is also not that great compared to say private sector so mm-hmm. what we usually see is people move from such a setup to uh, a, a private setup over a period of time may not it may not be immediately many of them work in the same place for 5 to 6 years mm-hmm. further hone their skills train other people then come out of the system then the cycle repeats mm-hmm. some so people th- of course are totally dedicated to teaching and uh, research they prefer to be in those centers for a longer time Uh, so that they can teach they can publish papers do more research because research opportunities are definitely better in such centers so the thing is there is this pride of the medical profession which is of course long lasting and for 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 you know for um you know fair enough i think that there is a lot of dedication involved in the studying in the preparation and also the commitment to the patient and patient's health um but how how much has the theoretical side of medicine and medical teaching uh grown over the past uh, say 20 years and is there a disparity between the practical side and the theoretical side in the indian medical education system uh i would say at the mbbs level that is the undergraduate level mm-hmm. um, there can be some disparities because okay. uh, that that is still Mm, at the medical college um, level and uh, teaching still uh, runs a few uh, years old in the sense the same kind of teaching exists uh, students are taught the similar um, clinical scenarios mm-hmm. uh, but it is changing because most right. hospitals now have specialties and uh, sub specialties uh, and uh, medicine uh, doesn't uh, medical teaching doesn't really have sil- fixed syllabus okay so for example in an exam even in undergraduate the latest thing can be asked potentially there is um space for newer advances in technologies to be asked about uh, you can be asked about those in your viva and practicals so there is no limit to what they can they can or they cannot ask right. there is no fixed syllabus per se uh, and since uh, specialties and subspecialties are part of medical colleges now and these doctors also are involved in teaching the medical students uh, there is not much difference between what is taught to the students and what is actually practiced and as you advance above mbbs to md or ms and mm-hmm. later on to uh, super specialization say in cardiology or neurology or nephrology mm-hmm. this becomes even more closer to how we practice in uh, real life uh, there is right. not much difference at all right because you know sometimes the breakthrough things happen say 2023 there's something really tremendous when it comes to i was reading recently that you know the uh, company moderna has now announced that they possibly have a vaccine for certain forms of cancer and possibly in the next 5 years for certain kinds of heart related diseases so from for, for that to to sort of trickle down into the textbooks as i mean you, you you did say there is a practical aspect which addresses this but how much time does it take because um i was talking to someone who said you know i i was trained in uh, to be a doctor in the 80s and what um what i teach sometimes or what my knowledge if i don't make the effort of updating my own uh, knowledge base and reading up on the medical journals releasing all these new uh, findings if i don't make that effort then i'm really sort of stuck behind is is, is that um is there a way to quicken theoretically the the gap and bridge the gap between the yeah. findings of today and what is being taught in the t- classrooms so 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 the key to keeping updated about the latest developments mm-hmm. is to involve oneself in uh, cme programs or what we call as continuing medical education programs right. which are conducted across basic and super specialties and sub specialties 
right. of one's interest say i'm a cardiologist so i need to attend a certain number of conferences uh, nationally and internationally either physically or online uh, at least read uh, two or three main journals of the field uh, and read about the latest updates so that i know uh, what is happening right in addition to that uh, there is a con- constant interaction of the doctors with the uh, people in the pharma uh, field people mm-hmm. from uh, devices and uh, um, other uh, say stents and balloons and other disposable w- what we use in uh, cardiology or surgical equipment for a surgeon uh, robotic systems for a surgeon Mm-hmm. so we all keep in touch with different fields as well as read our own journals and attend uh, conferences and cmes and mm-hmm. keep abreast and right. uh, even in medical curriculum for example in specialties like cardiology nephrology neurology mm-hmm. one paper in theory is completely on newer advances and technology mm-hmm. so one complete paper you have to answer and it can be anything even something published a week or two weeks earlier can come in the paper Ah, so okay one needs to keep abreast of newer developments there is no uh, yeah, from a uh, passing exam point of view as well as uh, in day to day practice uh, to utilize it more effectively uh, among our patients and now uh, patients are very much aware uh, i mean somebody uh, suffering from a particular disease or condition would uh, probably know as much uh, about newer advances as the doctor treating it of course the doctor would know it in depth yeah. and exact uh, indications contraindications in whom to apply not to apply but yeah. patients are very well read now uh, yeah, so you cannot you, lag behind so what do you do when uh, someone comes with you know the doctor google in the background and with and presenting all these things about oh i read here this is there this is so there's clearly you know everyone thinks they're the expert now with the internet and with the information yeah. era so how do you kind of mitigate that saying you know i know what you're saying but at the same time um because in in medicine of course you know whether it's mental health because there's there's a lot of uh, self prescription happening right people saying i'm going to do this because i read online this is going to help so clearly in a in a field like medicine or even engineering or aerospace you do need experts and yeah. uh, you can't self medicate or you can't self prescribe these things because there so, is a certain amount of knowledge and expertise which are important so where do you draw the line and how much uh, do you encourage a patient to know and just say you know what okay good that you have this information but also how much uh, do you do you draw the line saying okay this is enough this is where i step in see when a patient talks about something they have read about they came mm-hmm. across in say a newspaper or in an article or somebody forwarded to them or one of their relatives got this treatment done in so and so hospital right uh, we generally listen to that and if we feel that it is something uh, important and applicable in this patient we tend to discuss that further as to why it may be possible to do in this particular patient or may not be possible due to whatever reason but if it is something totally out of a whatsapp forward which doesn't really carry any weightage yeah. um something of a hoax which you obviously know that it doesn't work like recently there was this video of this gentleman saying you chew ginger um till you, you know, cry and your heart attack will go away your block will go away <laughs> right i mean something as ridiculous as that when I mean, yeah. people do come and ask us about these things as well yeah. so when it is a completely out of line question and you obviously know that it doesn't make any sense to tell yeah. them that see these are not really important and you should focus on what we are telling you but if it is something which is helpful and we know that this is something coming up uh, it may be available in some hospital or it may be soon available with us 
we discuss it in detail and give them the pros and cons there have been times where i have told my patient that see i do not know about this drug let me read about it or i right. do not know about this particular thing let me talk to somebody we'll get back to you it is always better to say that rather than dismissing that no this is not important I mean, we should okay. sometimes keep our ego aside because it is humanly not possible to know everything even in your own field which right. you know because patient was... may have read about or heard about right no which is important but at the same time you know I was talking to a friend who's a psychiatrist he said my issue is when people go on line and there's a community you know especially during the lockdown there was a lot of these groups that were like oh you know i'm depressed i've been through depression let me help you which now there's a fine line between saying you know what let me be a friend who can talk to you when you need me versus medical help when you really need intervention which could prevent a lot of you know situations could which which could go really bad and now even someone who says chew ginger it's very mm. easy to put it online because there's no consequences for that message but when something does go wrong they come to you because you have to intervene uh, whether it's with medication or surgery so how as a doctor uh, how concerned are you and is the medical community about these pop uh, uh, popular sort of people influencers or people coming online with these whatsapp forwards or these messages how do you kind of uh, you know prevent it in one way and also say you know what okay it's going to happen inevitably so where do you as a community and as a doctor sit on this uh it's a very very important question pertinent question because across fields be it mm-hmm. uh, cardiology be it uh, any other field cancer therapy Mm-hmm. Uh, we all doctors discuss sometimes on twitter sometimes in our meetings right. that uh, there are so many patients like this who could have benefited if they had come early to the doctor mm-hmm. taken the prescribed treatment but they uh, fell prey to one of these online uh, lectures or talks or somebody right. giving a miracle cure for cancer or heart failure or heart attack mm-hmm. and landed up in huge trouble many a yeah. times losing lives landing up in severe complications which are irreversible this has become part of our practice mm-hmm. we every every doctor across fields will have such patients in whom uh, things would have been different if they had listened right uh, if they didn't go behind these miracle cures but the human mind works that way we always mm-hmm. want something like that i may have smoked for 20 years mm-hmm. but today when i get cancer i want it to be cured in a day Yeah, yeah yeah that is how the human mind, mind works and yeah. all we can do is try and educate more and more people use social media use other modes where we can educate people we can try to remove these myths uh put out more and more content which is more scientific and evidence based that's yeah. the only way to fight it because of course uh, regulation from the government uh from um, agencies like uh, medical council of india or the nmc which is called now uh, and the ima have to put in more effort to dispel these myths but uh, the problem is there are so many uh, even even qualified doctors i would say uh, who do put out such um, content which are not really evidence based uh, it's just purely based on their own opinion and uh, frankly misguiding people uh, regarding mm-hmm. health conditions and disease which is unfortunate but it is there and we have to deal with it and we do deal with it on a uh day-to-day basis and you know that's another interesting uh space to talk about uh the number of institutes that are now being set up for uh all kinds of training right whether it's uh medical to um engineering and so with our population we have so many people graduating 
And then there are only so many jobs. Of course, you said that uh, the medical colleges and the institutes, of course, that are great. I mean, they may be underpaid but, or understaffed, but they are really, really good because of the uh, reputation they've built for themselves. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, which are the super speciality, which I'm sure are hard to get into. So now that creates a scope for a lot of the middle ground where a lot of people are setting up these practices without proper guidance and people are falling prey to malpractice, people are falling prey to people. I mean, because at the end of the day, doctors also are human. So there is greed in that space. So uh, how is that shaped up? Because for everything that comes up in a rapidly growing economy, you have two ends of the spectrum, but you have a gray area which can either be good, but it can also be a scope for exploitation. So how is that shaped up in our country over the past 20 years? Uh, regulation, I'm sad to say, in our country is very lax. Mm -hmm. uh, I can call myself any specialist uh, right. without any uh, adequate or uh, necessary uh, qualifications. Right. When you're holding a post in a medical college or a government hospital, of course, these documents are looked into and right. uh, wrong titles and designations are not given. Right. But when people are on their own, when they open their own clinics, Mm -hmm. Everybody calls themselves a diabetologist. Everybody calls themselves a cardiologist. Uh, and there's no real regulation here. And uh, uh, and unfortunately, people do not know or they do not have the wherewithal to uh, cross-verify these qualifications or the right. claims of these doctors that whether this doctor is really trained, is really qualified uh, to do this thing. And that is where I think uh, regulation has to be more stringent. Mm -hmm. uh, audits and uh, verifications have to be more uh, crucial and uh, more uh, effective, right? which unfortunately is not there as on today. Uh, and uh, people get away with it. Doctors get away with it, which is not correct. Which is very unfortunate because it's, it's not even about uh, your income bracket, but many times people who say middle class, upper middle class go for this out of, oh, you know, I heard from a friend, there's a clinic down the road and I went there and the complications that arise as a result are horrible. And But but more often than not, it happens in the lower income groups. So, um, you know, what I, I want to understand is you said we have these different brackets of hospitals, right? From the most uh, private to the most public, but diseases themselves don't discriminate, right? So uh, whether it's heart-related, um, you know, say something as simple as uh, cholesterol-related diseases or other kinds of diseases. I mean, of course, some are very, very specific and they don't happen to a larger population. But um, how how is that panned out? Because do you, do you see a certain trend in our population across income groups when it comes to heart-related matters? Yeah, we, I mean, uh, heart-related problems are not just limited to uh, rich Mm -hmm. uh, or the urban population. Heart diseases also happen among uh, poor uh, people, among the lower socioeconomic strata, among the rural population. Mm -hmm. But of course, the type of diseases that happen among uh, uh, different social uh, uh, strata are different. For mm -hmm. example, we have lower socioeconomic strata dealing more with congenital heart disease or people born with uh, holes in the heart and other anomalies. Okay. Rheumatic heart disease or which predominantly starts with a throat infection with streptococci and later causes valvular heart disease, leading to valve replacements and interventions. Oh, wow. These are more common among lower socioeconomic strata, whereas among the upper socioeconomic strata, you have more of lifestyle-related hypertension and uh, uh, heart attacks and related complications. But mm -hmm. heart disease does affect all strata of the society. Mm -hmm. And even among the poor, if you see, there is a rural poor and there is the urban poor. Yeah. 
there are people in the city uh, who live under uh, miserable conditions and uh, so so you have an entire gamut of diseases affecting um, irrespective of uh, socio economic strata uh, and uh, as i told you uh, some of these diseases require specialized care surgeries yeah. interventions which are expensive uh, uh, the indian government does have uh, certain schemes like um, the uh, uh, ayushman bharat scheme which caters to the below poverty line people but the uh, number of patients is so huge uh, yeah, and yeah. the number of doctors are uh, taking care of these conditions the necessary specialists are so few and uh, the uh, hospitals where these procedures can be done are still not that many although in a city you may see that everywhere there is a hospital uh, when you take it Uh, per capita population the hospitals are not that many and the number of specialists is not that huge so there is a huge discrepancy and because of which there is a huge backlog there are a lot of patients waiting to be operated waiting to even see a specialist yeah. uh, especially in government hospitals and uh, <clears throat> uh, setups you know the thing is uh, doctor the you see it you see a trend right now across india with this corporatization of everything from education to the even to a certain extent the healthcare system so how how good is that and as a doctor how much does that um ease out the process and make things more sort of smooth and free flowing when it comes to uh, when it comes to admission when it comes to um you know keeping checks and balances and to the other end is how much has it taken out the personalization ability for a doctor when it comes to the way they practice and when it comes to the intervention of pharmaceutical companies so what happens is uh, in a uh, uh, private hospital obviously a corporate hospital uh, has been put up with the intention of making profit yeah you will not have venture capitalists you will not have different uh, uh private entities investing in healthcare mm-hmm. if they cannot make a decent profit yeah otherwise they would do some other business why would they want to open a hospital why would they want to uh, hire so many people and manpower put up infrastructures buy costly expensive equipment and yeah. then do it for free or uh, no profit no loss it would won't happen yeah uh, so obviously when there is a private or a corporate uh, healthcare entity they mm-hmm. are looking for profits but right but if you compare to say some other industry the profits are not that much right it may be consistent uh, it may not be too much variable like in other fields mm-hmm. uh, like for example during covid everything else collapsed but the hospitals and the healthcare still were uh, profit compared to other fields mm-hmm. but uh, there are consistent and decent profits which uh, which is the reason why private uh, entities are there yeah and they are also there because there is a gap because there are not enough tertiary care centers there are not enough uh, government hospitals uh, there are not enough uh, government infrastructures and manpower to deal with the huge disease burden we have across uh, socio economic strata so as i told earlier you have an entire spectrum of hospitals uh, which treat these patients and these private entities and corporate entities are there uh, because the gaps exist yeah. and obviously they are making use of that gap and they are providing service Yeah I mean they are providing service it's not that they are just making profit they yeah. are filling a huge gap in healthcare which would have been otherwise uh, untenable mm. but they do make profits uh, so so 
when when people come to these hospitals either they have to have some scheme which covers them or they have to have money or they have to have uh, good enough insurance uh, which can help them uh, get treatment uh, okay. whether it uh, it is difficult for a doctor not really because the doctors uh, most doctors work in these hospitals yeah. uh, for a salary and they provide services the profits are not really made by the doctors right uh, the doctors are just providing service to the best of their ability because they have the infrastructure they have the manpower they don't have to worry about those things which mm. you have to say in a government hospital if i am operating in a government hospital uh, not all but most of them i'll be worried about where are my instruments uh, what will i need whether i have everything uh, required for this procedure whether i have an adequate manpower to take care of this patient post operatively all those will be on my head whereas in a corporate hospital i do not have those worries because i know that these are taken care of and i can do the best of my um, effort and uh, yeah that is that where seems stressful though right imagine thinking okay i'm going to do the best i can i'm medically trained to do this but is there a nurse who's going to show up is there you know is there going to be enough equipment for post care is there enough hygiene which another secondary infection that's very yeah. stressful situations to work within true i mean all all my colleagues who work in government setups in government hospitals mm-hmm. uh, be it smaller district level hospitals or uh, higher level hospitals tertiary hospitals they have to work uh, i would say three times harder than me uh, doing it at a corporate hospital right. uh, because they have to worry about everything uh, even right. residents who are training in these centers because i myself have trained in uh, sms medical college jaipur there's right. a huge burden of patients a huge amount of responsibility and things not as freely available as in a uh, corporate hospital to do your work so government mm-hmm. uh, doctors whoever are doing uh, across different levels of care they are doing a fantastic job under the uh, existing circumstances and the system is holding on because of the hard work of these doctors and nurses and technicians who work in these hospitals and the residents who are training there and the medical students and interns otherwise it would have been a very difficult system to yeah stand up even for a day and are the medical uh, supplies the drugs the the procedures are they all the same or is there a disparity there as well between private and government uh, there will be a disparity because in government hospitals most often the uh, care is either free or subsidized right uh, so they cannot really have the luxury of uh, using as many consumables as many disposables uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh the advanced medication and uh, stuff what i would use in a private hospital so right. they have to work under certain limitations uh use and make do with the basic minimum and not really look at uh, high end uh, disposables and uh, uh, other stuff you Plus know doctor of course of course right no because you know we saw of course the it makes sense you know i i i didn't ask the question saying to demonize uh, corporatization of healthcare but uh, we saw the the important statement you said which is it fills a big gap and it fills a thing which uh, is needed and of course people use that need uh, and address that need and the people go and use those services but we saw we, we we you know we were given a glimpse of how much pressure the entire healthcare system hospital system came during covid of course the the nursing staff the 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 post that fungal infection certain other disease secondary infections um how well prepared are we for a public health crisis in india right now i would say we have learned a lot after covid mm. covid was a right. big a huge learning experience uh, mm. within a gap of two year span of two years Uh, there was exponential learning at the nursing level at the 
administration level at the doctor level mm-hmm. uh, how to deal with these uh, patients uh, how when to admit when not to admit for example in the first wave almost mm-hmm. everybody who was covid positive was admitted yeah yeah whether they needed it or not but then when the second wave hit as we knew that uh, everybody doesn't need admission you, it's only the sick patients who need to be admitted yeah. we learned quickly but uh, i would say india as a country uh, there may be criticism there are a lot of drawbacks uh, there have been deaths but for a population like india with the existing uh, uh, health infrastructure at government and other levels and private entities india managed covid pretty well yeah. as a doctor this is not something um, i would i would just say most of my colleagues in government and other hospitals would agree that india dealt with covid much effectively than anybody had thought even we doctors i don't think expected that as a country we will do uh, the, the way we did uh, beat uh, vaccination we taking care of patients of course there were problems there yeah. was a crisis for beds there was a crisis for icus there was a crisis for oxygen but despite all that as a country we did well and uh, and the country is now prepared better i would say mm-hmm. uh, in future if there are uh, such emergencies as a country we are much uh, well equipped right. and i'm sure the government as well as health authorities uh, have learned their lessons and those will be utilized in future mm-hmm. when such uh, health crisis will be there no that's that's no i mean of course you know the thing there is a lot of again miss uh, representation of how things were you know because it's so easy to rant on a tweet or a whatsapp group saying oh this this hospital turned us away or this uh, uh, there, there's an appropriate misappropriation of oxygen tanks so you hear all this so it's good like that that someone like you who's in the heart of it in the, in the thick of things to give a clear explanation because these things need to be dispelled at a level which is uh, only possible when someone is so involved in a, as a doctor like you and someone who's got the expertise um i, I heard see, a statement as a country as a country i would like to add Mm-hmm. when it comes to healthcare data is something india is not very strong with yeah it is not only with covid even before covid right if you ask for any data for example how many heart attacks happen in india in a year right how many angioplasties are done in a year how many uh, say uh, cancer diagnosis is done in a year it is very difficult to get these data mm-hmm. how many deaths happen due to uh, heart attacks in a year because yeah. our reporting system our death certification these are all not computerized completely so, right. some parts of it are still working manual level so there is a lo- lot of uh, under diagnosis under reporting over reporting so our data is not really strong computerization right. has to happen more aggressively in the healthcare segment across primary secondary and tertiary care levels and we need to have more data then when mm-hmm. a pandemic like covid is there we'll also have better data to say how many patients actually died how many patients uh, actually were hospitalized so it is all from different sources so mm-hmm. for me to vouch and say okay this is what it is is not very diff- it's, it's not very easy yeah 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 no, but of course you're speaking from what you have witnessed in your hospital yes. which is yes. the best you can do in a in, in a system which is not very well documented right but um doctor i want to just uh, i have a couple of things i want to ask i think the first thing i i i want to address is i heard this statement which is a sick population is a profitable population um so based on that statement how sick or healthy is the average 
uh, Indian. <laughs> if that's even a, a uh, if it's too vast a question, please um, let me know, and I can try to make it more specific. But see, India, 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 as I told you, uh, has a diverse population. You right. have on one end uh, people who have uh, reached a good socio-economic uh, uh, level, mm-hmm. where they do not suffer from basic uh, infectious diseases. Right. Uh, they do not suffer from malnutrition. Where they do not suffer from starvation. Uh, they suffer from uh, lifestyle-related diseases. Take for right. example smoking, mm-hmm. uh, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. And on the other hand, you do have uh, poor people uh, who do suffer from malnutrition, who do suffer from infectious diseases. There are still cases of malaria. There are cases of dengue. Uh, There are cases of starvation. You have both ends of the spectrum in India and everything in between. So let's talk as a cardiologist because I know it's a vast question. As a cardiologist, yeah. as how a cardiologist, is our heart health in comes to a middle class, to the growing population, which seems to be more affluent, which everyone talks about in studies, saying the Indian middle class has more purchasing power. You see a lot more of them traveling internationally. You see a lot of them who have a little better. And sorry for interrupting, but I, I, I because you're a cardiologist, you specifically work in this yeah. space. How is this population's heart health uh, going? Um, in present day 2023? 20, so as an ethnic group, mm-hmm. Indians are at the highest risk of developing heart disease. Okay. Among the entire world population, Indians are, as the, are at the highest risk as an ethnic group because okay. of genetic reasons uh, and other reasons. Uh, so India is already the diabetes capital of the world. Right. And more uh, apart from diagnosed diabetes diseases, diabetes uh, cases, we also have a huge number of pre-diabetics and undiagnosed diabetics among our population. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, we also have a huge burden of known and unknown cardiac cases in our population. As mm-hmm. a cardiologist, uh, I see a huge number of heart patients, hypertensives, diabetics, people having high cholesterol. And as I told Indians, have the highest risk of developing heart disease among various ethnic groups. And what are uh, some of those genetic reasons, high. doctor? Before we talk about the lifestyle things, what are some there of are the various gen- there are various theories for the increased susceptibility of Indians to heart disease. Mm-hmm. One being that we are prone to develop abdominal obesity. So mm-hmm. even with a little bit of over overeating, we develop a tummy, and mm-hmm. that tummy will be our undoing because uh, abdominal obesity is one of the major risk factors for insulin resistance, diabetes, and heart disease. Right. There are various theories. Uh, Some of the theories are that as a population, we have gone through several uh, starvation episodes, several uh, uh, years of drought, Mm -hmm. uh, and then come out of it. That is one of the reasons. There's a tendency to hoard the food. Yes, hoard food. And when when refeeding happens, there is uh, fat deposition in the body. We very easily convert excess calories into fat and which tends to get stored in the abdomen and as a result leading to insulin resistance. The other being uh, even with small increases in calorie intake, we tend to uh, put on weight, uh, especially around the abdomen and uh, leading to obesity and diabetes. And Mm. with lesser amounts of intake of uh, carbohydrates and fats, we tend to become more uh, obese, faster than say a Caucasian or somebody else would. There is right. something called the jumping gene hypothesis, uh, starvation hypothesis, drought hypothesis. Whatever the reasons, uh, basic fact remains that even with a little overeating, 
and a little sedentary lifestyle, we accumulate a far amount of cardiac risk compared to other ethnicities. Okay. So we need to be extra careful with our diet and exercise and lifestyle. Right. And the thing is, see, over the past now 20 years, we see more Indians who are who are not worried about the next meal. I can't, of course, talk about, can't generalize. We do, as you said, have a huge diversity in that population. Maybe you have someone who's flying caviar for their next meal versus someone who can't even afford uh, the basic rations, right? So I, I, I can't generalize in a population like ours. But uh, again, let's the, the population that you do, you do see uh, in Bangalore is, um, again, diverse, but there is a chance that they are more leaning towards, okay, they can get two meals a day. Uh, and now with this abundance of food in for some populations, in the next 30 years, will you see some of this scarcity uh, mindset and as a result, the, the genes manifesting in a form where we don't um, have this, this, this tendency to uh, develop such um, drastic results from low feeding or from little excess eating? Yeah. Uh, see, uh, all countries uh, go through these phases of diseases. Right. Like the US and Europe have gone through these phases where, had, where they had a peak of uh, heart diseases, heart attacks, bypass surgeries and angioplastics. Mm-hmm. And now they have plateaued off. Right. India is still on the upward part of the graph mm-hmm. where case numbers are increasing. At some point, it will plateau out as right. the society uh, advances uh, through times. But yes, as I told you, we have different spectrum of people uh, in the same thing we have people who are starving we have people who are overfeeding and overeating yeah so they will all be at different parts of the curve but you will see those people whose whose socioeconomic conditions are improving developing these problems in the next 10 to 20 years mm. so it's like you break out from one group you escape one set of diseases and you yes. enter the next yeah. so you know many people are proud when 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 i say india is developing they're like no you can't say that we are or if I say India is underdeveloped, we'll say, how dare you, right? It almost becomes a patriotic issue. And it clearly seems like the signs are re- there to see, not in our GDP, but in our population, in the health of a population. So yeah. how far are we from getting some sense of escaping from the underdeveloped status as a country to some level of, okay, the, there's a general level of basic health in India? I would say at least we are uh, two decades away from that. Okay. So about 20 years from yeah. being considered as generally uh, yes. a level of basic health. Okay. okay. Yeah, and even uh, the healthcare structures to mm-hmm. mature and reach that level where uh, you have a fairly decent coverage for the entire population. I think it will take another 15 to 20 years. Okay. So that, I mean, it's promising. It's not, it's not great, but it's at least on, on the horizon, right? Yeah. Um, as long as we are improving and not deteriorating, it's always better. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's try staying positive, right? Because there is that that tendency or that there is that possibility as well. So on that note, we do, we are known famously in India for a lot of under dealings, right? The black market, uh, black money, if you want to call it as well. Um, how much of that is there in the medical industry? And I, you know, I, as I said, these are questions I'm posing to you and please, uh, you can say that's absolutely relevant if it is. But, you know, when it comes to organ doning, when it comes to the illegal organ market, how much mm-hmm. of that is actually true versus how much of it is rumor that is being exaggerated? It's a rumor that's being exaggerated. Okay. When it comes to organ donation, uh, India has such stringent rules 
okay that is it that it is in fact counterproductive uh, right. people who are in transplantation it renal mm-hmm. transplantation liver transplantation want the rules to be a little more flexible to allow more and more people to have organ transplantation in fact say, indian okay. rules are very rigid uh, okay. so it is impossible to break these rules and uh, you know do the kind of uh, uh, filmy uh, organ transplants for money Uh, take kidney from this fellow give it to that fellow uh, right. these are highly improbable and you know situations which happen only in movies that's good to hear i mean yeah. it may be happening one or two places here and there but right. largely it's a very very tightly knit tightly controlled part of medical profession right. and uh, licensing uh, renewing of those licenses are all very stringent processes uh, which uh, which which are difficult to bypass that's good to hear you know again these one of these one of these things that need to be heard from someone like you because otherwise it's one of those things you sit down at a bar or a coffee shop you're like man you know i heard about this guy who got a kidney from this village and that person was shipped overnight by bus and they were shipped back without any documentation so you know sadly you, as you said there may be the one or two odd cases but for the most you know, part you know, people it's... people talk like kidneys can be carried in lunch boxes and given it to somebody it's not so easy and <laughs> it's not so easy to transport organs uh, right. across places and give it to people i mean like i told stray incidents uh, may happen in fact uh, we have underutilization of uh, transplantation facilities across hospitals because uh, people do not really come forward to donate organs especially when somebody dies uh, yeah. off road traffic accident or uh, due to other reasons Uh, there is underutilization there is still right. a long way to go to properly utilize the available organs in our country mm-hmm. so doctor you know you hear sometimes with this technology we spoke about things like gene editing before we started recording and sometimes you heard about about it going too far with crispr and some doctor in china using it to edit out certain characteristics in certain genes and uh enable certain chinese babies to be born with blue eyes and blonde hair and again that i could be wrong again this is maybe hearsay but how much of gene editing can be applied when it comes to editing out these certain genes and, and traits and the manifestation of these genes that indians carry which make us predisposed to heart related diseases yeah so uh there are several uh, uh genes and sequences which have been identified which mm-hmm. uh, carry an increased risk of uh, heart attacks increased risk of hypertension high cholesterol uh, increased risk of heart failure certain uh, arrhythmias which can lead to cardiac arrest uh, but the thing is each of these conditions is quite uh, uh, heterogeneous right. it is not one gene or one sequence which you cannot which you can change if you mm-hmm. change that there will be another which will still cause a problem so right. uh, most of these diseases if you see are multifactorial and not one thing determines the final outcome right. uh, for example in uh, heart attack most cases of heart attack have multiple factors like smoking hypertension diabetes obesity family history uh, and the genetic component may or may not be there in each case so mm-hmm. uh, except for those very few cases of uh, purely genetic uh, cardiomyopathies uh, and certain channelopathies causing the sudden cardiac arrest Uh, i don't think gene editing will play a very huge role in uh, preventing uh, some of these diseases uh, they will still have to be fought out the hard way by changing our lifestyles uh, stopping to smoke exercising regularly eating more healthy and it is going to be a long uh, long drawn uh, sustained battle which you have to do uh, in order to prevent these 
complications we all wish there was one uh, sure short thing to change mm-hmm. uh, like one gene to be edited or something <laughs> but that will be applicable to a small subsegment of uh, heart diseases and in a way that's life right life comes with ups and downs you have, you, you make some right decisions some wrong decisions so on that note actually before we start winding down for today um i think there are people listening today who are in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s 50s or maybe even older so as you said some of the things are not in our control we're born with it and until a day comes where we can genetically correct ourselves maybe through a click of a button or implanting a chip in our bodies who knows uh, what are some of the things that we can start doing uh say you know i've graduated from college or i have a job so i don't have to worry about the food i uh, can afford or the food i get but at the same time you know i i i have the ability and the time in the day to spend on my health um uh, so what are some of the preventive things or rather some of the things you can introduce into your life that can put you on the right track to not sort of spiral out of control or head uh, for heart disease or heart related issues in the foreseeable future i would say uh, we have to start a decade earlier than you mentioned right these changes in lifestyle have to start in teenage right when risk factors actually start accumulating we see a lot of childhood obesity now we see a lot of uh, young patients with uh, cholesterol and hypertension and diabetes mm-hmm. so our lifestyle changes should start in teenage regular exercise right uh, at least 30 to 45 minutes of outdoor activity weight gardening weight running weight swimming right uh, anything playing a game of badminton cricket it may be anything it should be there mm-hmm. overeating has to be avoided uh, i wouldn't go into specifics of diet eat this eat that but right. generally eating less uh, eating less refined uh, food mm-hmm. uh, eating less sugar and sweets mm-hmm. uh, not eating too much of junk food on a regular basis eating more fruits and vegetables uh, and uh, sticking to generally homemade food and not eat out too much helps right smoking is something somebody should never start and right. if they have started they should stop there is no excuse the only people who are uh, benefited by smoking one is the cigarette company and the second one is the government which collects taxes on that right uh, there is no third person uh, who benefits probably right. hospitals and doctors to some extent because they'll come back to us with diseases you're but talking to a the- smoker right now i i i'm trying to not uh, <laughs> you know i hang my head in shame but i quit for 18 months and then i fell off the wagon so i know i can do it again but yeah so smoking has to go all forms of tobacco have to be stopped because the risk of cancer the risk of heart disease mm-hmm. uh, the risk of lung disease are all very huge right uh one has to regularly because doctor that goes to show i'm an objective host of a podcast i'm not lying to you that i don't smoke so i <laughs> <laughs> so i mean there are a lot of doctors who smoke so <laughs> yeah. there's nothing uh, i mean it's a it's a human tendency i mean these yeah. things but we need to get over it alcohol i would say if you have not started do not start but right. if you drink drink as little as possible in moderation Mm-hmm. don't be a heavy drinker but that again has health consequences mm-hmm. uh get a decent uh, blood workup done uh, once in a year once in two years to look for sugars when would you st- recommend someone starting that checked. the blood panel work uh, an annual checkup as i said it should start in teenage at the age of oh, 15 as early or 16 as right. yes at the age of 15 or 16 a blood pressure checkup a checkup mm-hmm. for cholesterol a checkup for blood sugar is a minimum thing that should be done and right. a height and weight check up to look for the body mass index whether somebody is going on the overweight way 
needs to be checked at that point because once you're 20 25 you're already obese and you already have some consequences right so, so the ongoing process right at the age of 15, right 16 because right. insulin resistance starts in teenage you may mm-hmm. develop diabetes at the age of 40 but the process process starts at, in teenage or in your 20s mm-hmm. so it should be started right then and uh, if you are diabetic if you are hypertensive see your doctor regularly keep the numbers under control stress is one of the major uh, risk factors for heart disease so you need to keep it in check of course everybody's life is stressful nowadays right. but dealing with it in a appropriate way taking help when required if you're too stressed or anxious or depressed right. uh, and keeping our surroundings be it family among friends in work more peaceful and more cordial uh, goes a long way in reducing our stress levels and mm-hmm. uh, keeping us healthy that's great advice and it, it makes for a better life and you know some things are not in your control but if you can um, put the right things into your mind and your body I think it seems like life and more than life I think your body will reward you with the right experience that you can have I want to ask you something which I've been practicing following reading up on and very interested in for the past year or two uh, and if, I would love your thoughts on that and also for the people listening what is your take on time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting as a uh, thing to introduce into your life on a daily or weekly basis or monthly basis even? See, intermittent fasting, although there are some conflicting studies, Mm -hmm. uh, does provide benefit, especially Mm -hmm. when you're trying to lose weight, when you're trying to restrict calories. Mm -hmm. And uh, even for patients who are pre-diabetic and diabetic, it does Mm -hmm. help. Mm -hmm. I myself do intermittent fasting. Right. I generally do not have breakfast. I have dinner and then have lunch on the next day. So 15 to 16 hours of uh, intermittent fasting I do on a daily basis. Right. And this does help reset the system. It helps in restricting calories most importantly. Right. And it doesn't depend which meal you forego. Mm-hmm. Some people cannot uh, sustain without breakfast. But some people can do without lunch. Some may right. be able to skip dinner. It doesn't matter which one you skip. Right. As long as you skip a meal and restrict those calories... And mm-hmm. another important thing is not to overdo the other two meals. Because right, you have skipped right. a meal. If you are overdoing your lunch or overdoing your dinner or snacking heavily in between, that will negate the whole process because your overall calories will still be the same. Right, 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 right. Yeah. That's brilliant, doctor. And the that... other thing which I want to add, which I forgot earlier, mm-hmm. is each one of us should learn CPR. Because Mm. we do see quite a bit of heart attack and cardiac arrest around us. So we should teach CPR to more and more school kids, office goers and everybody should know CPR. In every house, in every household, in every office, some people should know how to do CPR. In fact, everybody should know because you never know when you need it. It may save a life. And where can someone learn, doctor? Is Is there a center? Is there an online resource that you would recommend? Online resources are available as well as hospitals. Uh, most of the hospitals conduct BLS or basic uh, life support classes where okay. you can go and learn CPR. Okay. No, that's, ACLS think... is advanced cardiac uh, life support that is required for nurses and doctors and uh, technicians. But right. common people can learn BLS, basic life support, which teaches about reviving a patient, chest mm-hmm. compressions and the basics of CPR, which anybody can learn. And I think for a parent as well, I think uh, is a very important skill, right? Like to just have... Absolutely, yeah. Doctor, it's been a pleasure. Um, sorry if my Same questions thing. went around the place, but I 
I, I'd like, I like to debunk many of these myths and rumors. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do that and share your expertise with everyone listening today. I, I, good luck with all the work. When, when your person sent me a mail, uh, they told about you and they said he likes to uh, diss himself and others. So I was a little uh, <laughs> worried. <that. laughs> I haven't developed any cardio surgery, a ca- cardi- <laughs> cardiovascular material yet, doctor. <laughs> but what I can say is my questions come from the heart. Sorry, that was a horrible pun. No, but <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Enjoyed uh, talking to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, doctor. And thank you for all the great work you're doing and helping uh, all the people out there. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.